You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 62. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to The Local Maximum. We're going to get to, I would say, a lot of interesting, fascinating topics today. It's an economics and society episode uh, for sure, but... You know, this all touches on what's going on in the tech world in particular, you know, and we're going to capture some of the big questions. You know, what is capitalism? What is competition? What is wealth? Some very, very big questions. So this week has been, well, it's been, uh, you know, quite a week for me. I just finished that first episode of the final seasons of Game of Thrones. I've been looking forward to that uh, for a long time. And then... This comes off of like five events in a row that I did. I think this week is birthday week in my family. I had a bunch of those events, including for my own. Actually, two of them were were for mine, okay? Maybe a little overkill, I know. But uh, anyway, on Thursday, I went to a Tech 2025 event here in New York put together by Charlie Oliver. I think uh, that I'll, I'll link to that episode where I spoke to her. That was episode 40 of Local Maximum. These events are... They're pretty unique. Like my show, they focus on the proliferation of technology in these interesting times. Uh, they focus on the, uh, the, the idea is to bring a very broad cross-section of people in. And rather than just having a speaker and simple Q&A, there's a lot more focus on having discussion and having individuals, you know, the folks, if you will, share their views. Now, of course, the people who go to these events don't entirely represent the people as a whole, but you really do see a lot of different perspectives there. And sometimes the speakers are surprised because the audience doesn't just nod and agree with everything they say, like good zombies at most of these talks. Um, there, are, there are a lot of talks like that. But sometimes, you know, they say, hey, I'm really concerned with what you're building or I'm really concerned with what you're saying. Now, I should point out this doesn't always mean that the folks are right, but I think that Charlie is uh, versus the speaker. But I think that Charlie is getting people to have these conversations that they wouldn't otherwise normally have. Another feature of these events is that they're largely kept secret. Not like skull and bones secret, but you know what I mean. Unrecorded so that people can speak their minds. The main exception to that is the interview that you're about to hear today, because I did a live podcast recording with the speaker, Denise Hearn, author of a book called The Myth of Capitalism. Now, before we get into it, I want to tell you a little bit more about this particular event that was held on April 11th. It was called Economies of the Future, Disruptive Technology, The Myth of Capitalism, and Why Ordinary People Don't Get Wealthy. The picture that was used to advertise the events was a group of fancy people in top hats. Man, I should have got a top hat for this. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that, that, that would have been funny if like I started, if I just set up for the podcast, I just put on my top hat. I, I should have thought of that but next time, maybe. The inspiration for this event, by the way, it came from a, a tweet from investor Jason Calacanis. And this is a pin tweet on his Twitter when I pull it up. So that's how you know he's really serious about it. And it's a partial list of reasons why people don't get wealthy. Uh, it, it's interesting when I read these. Sometimes I sometimes wonder whether I should include myself, uh, my, myself as wealthy. What is wealth anyway? Uh, you know, just to have a little self-awareness, I guess, because in the interview you're about to hear, 
I give an example and, and I say, so why aren't I wealthy yet? But in some measures I am. So that gives me something to think about. Jason Calcanis's definition of wealthy is this. Wealth encompasses so much more than money, including options, health, happiness, and the pursuit of one's vision of what the world should be. So you don't necessarily have to have zillions and zillions of dollars for that. So I'll just read the list, and then Jason's tweet encouraged everyone to add their own to the list. Uh, and we had a little discussion about this. Uh, list goes, a lack of skills, a lack of risk-taking, not building a network, poor work ethic, not reading books, giving up after getting beat down, fear, being born at the wrong time, and being born in the wrong country or wrong location. So we had a discussion about that, and I think the reason why this discussion was paired with a presentation from Denise Hearn is that her book, The Myth of Capitalism, is that is essentially saying that the economy is rigged, which is one of the reasons why people today feel like they are hitting a brick wall when it comes to achieving wealth. And I know I'm kind of using Trump's words here, you know, it's rigged. But of course, Bernie Sanders would say the same thing. Uh, and Denise's position, I think, is laid out in this book is different from Trump's and it's different from Bernie's. And it's different from mine, too, which I'll get to in a little bit. But her focus is on industry concentration. We took a look at the major banks, how it's been reduced from dozens to like four consumer goods, airlines, basically everything. I, I think I remember sometimes, you know, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders had this quote where he said, you know, you don't necessarily need 23 underarm spray deodorants and all that. And, you know, he, he was kind of rightly criticized for that because, hey, that's what, that's what this country's about. But I guess it turns out that a lot of that uh, is the illusion of choice. Maybe there's some product differences in there. So you do have a little bit of choice in that respect of what type you're going to get. But if they're all owned by the same company, then you don't have as much choice as you, as you should on, say, getting a better price. Nowhere is this trend more evident than in the tech giants. I'm talking about Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon. In fact, Denise shows here that startups which aim to compete with these companies are not even funded by the VC firm Silicon Valley. So her main idea is that there's a lack of antitrust enforcement. In other words, allowing these companies to merge together into several big players is leading to an imbalanced economic structure that gives the veneer of capitalism when the promise of capitalism, which is constantly improving products, better job, more opportunities, really don't materialize. Now, before we move on to the interview, I need to say a couple of things. Whenever someone is willing to sit down and talk to me about a topic that they've spent years covering and researching, my goal is to learn as much as possible about the essence of what they found and what their opinions are based on the experiences that they have had and the facts that they have uncovered. These questions are not unbiased. They are specifically designed to build a bridge between my perspective, and I assume that there's some connection between my perspective and the perspective of my audience, and that of the person that I am interviewing. So I know people get confused when I don't push back when something the guest says seems to contradict a view I've put forth in the past. In this case, it's my belief in free markets, if you haven't guessed. But Denise's findings are well-researched, and you're going to hear some new facts and anecdotes that you were unaware of. And the issues that she is bringing up is something that we'll have to contend with one way or another. 
There's a lot in here that's really spot on. And if you want, uh, I'm going to add my perspective and also make some comparisons from previous shows, like on the definition of capitalism and things like that. And all of that I'm going to talk about after this interview. It's about 15 minutes. So let's bring it up. Denise Hearn, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Thank you very much. Isn't it great to be on this show that you probably never heard of? <laughs> so, Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So uh, thanks for uh, speaking to us today. Your book is called The Myth of Capitalism. Let's start with something that uh, maybe should be basic here, but I imagine it's, it's not so straightforward if you ask 20 people on the street. You know, last week on this program, I spoke to the uh, admin of the Facebook Capitalism page, uh, Facebook's not treating him too well, by the way. Um, my question here is, how do you define capitalism? Um, okay, so we would basically have a, a very um, a very basic description of capitalism, which is that you need competi- competition in the markets, you need a competitive marketplace um, and, and that fosters you know, innovation. And um, uh, the whole title, The Myth of Capitalism, is so interesting. When I was last in New York, actually, uh, some guy saw me carrying the book and he, he came up to me and he said, The Myth of Capitalism, are you a socialist? You know, and then he started ranting against Right. Uh, if I see the AOC. title, I'm not sure what I'm going to get. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So then I explained the thesis. No, actually, we are trying to say that basically... We right now associate the U.S. with uh, as the bastion of free markets globally, but what we have seen in our research is that actually competition you know, has been declining over the last 40 years, and so we don't actually live in a free market capitalist uh, system currently. We, we live in you know, a monopoly and oligopoly system, and so that's why it's the myth of capitalism. So you've spoken about the trend of consolidation of industry and the lack of investment in competitive startups do you see this trend across the ex- economic spectrum, or is it concentrated in certain industries? And what do you think is the primary cause? I know you spoke about that a little bit, but maybe you could speak more to that. Um, yeah, so what we actually see is that it's quite pervasive across all industries. 75% of, of industries have become more concentrated in the last 20 years. Uh, again, as I mentioned in my talk, it's you know, everything from uh, funeral services to eyeglasses to kidney dialysis to airlines to banking. Uh, so there really isn't one sector that is sort of exempt from this. I think the primary cause definitely goes back to the 1980s when President Reagan relaxed the merger guidelines and made it easier for companies to merge. Um, and, you know, basically we, over the last 40 years, have really only been concerned about consumer pricing when it comes to evaluating mergers. And that has been detrimental because uh, we've sort of ignored all of the other facets around concentrated power. The other thing is with tech companies, they offer free products. So how do you evaluate them uh, in an antitrust framework when the entire kind of zeitgeist uh, currently is around consumer pricing? It's always interesting to me how free products has been. I mean, there was a book about that, you know, like, you know, free, a radical idea. I don't really remember what I didn't read it. But um, maybe that was a mistake to um, to. I don't know, say that the, the, the new wave of the future is free product because, you know, in reality, there's no such thing. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, even Amazon and um, Facebook and Google, they've sort of been able to, I think, circumvent antitrust scrutiny because they have this focus on, on uh, sort of free products or, you know, uh, Amazon's whole kind of 
reason for being is, you know, improve the customer experience. But uh, and, and so we all benefit tremendously from that. But then if you're a worker or if you're a supplier, you know, sometimes uh, it doesn't work out so well for you. And we've seen, you know, with the Elizabeth Warren proposal, I don't know how many of you have um, read that or are interested in that. But, you know, what I think people fail to realize about Amazon specifically is that they, you know, they operate a platform that is supposed to be a neutral e-commerce platform, but actually um, 55% of the goods that are sold on Amazon are actually Amazon products uh, or Amazon, you know, branded goods or unbranded. So you may not realize that they're Amazon. And, uh, and so if you're a supplier, you have zero, you know, choice, but to really list your product on Amazon because, again, also 55% of all online product searches start on Amazon. But you're basically, you know, dependent on them. They they now are the fundamental infrastructure on which commerce is done. And you're dependent on your competitor to do business. And so that's why they're in this compromised position. And that's why, you know, Elizabeth Warren and others are saying you need to divorce those two things. You, you shouldn't be able to operate a platform and then also compete on that platform, basically. So you had a slide uh, in there about, you know, how and the business school slide, which I got to, which was how, you know, in order to um, turn a profit, you need to have some sort of market dominance. Um, but I, I guess the question is, how do you tell the difference between the you know, temporary monopoly produced on a free market that may last for a few years versus something more permanently entrenched along the lines of what you're, uh, of what, you know, you're concerned about in your book and your presentation? And I guess if I could think off the top of my head, like um, the, the temporary monopoly situation, which I think is good, is I invent something new, it comes out, it works really well, and then it, competitors are like, holy crap, that's really good, how did he do that? And then it takes them, you know, six months to a year to copy me, meanwhile, I'm on to something else. So it's temporary. Um, but what, what you see going on is something kind of, some kind of a, a permanent entrenchment. How do you tell the difference between those two? Because in 2000, you know, we were told, oh, uh, you know, Microsoft now has like a 20-year lock on, um, on uh, it, internet browsers. That turned out to be, you know, not quite true. So what's your, how do you think about this? Well, and in part with Microsoft, it was because uh, they actually did face scrutiny from the regulators that, um, you know, they weren't broken up, but they certainly were forced to kind of uh, divest themselves from some of the anti-competitive behavior that they had been um, Op, you know, operating on, and and so I think it's. Uh, I think these are great questions. There are some monopolies that are natural monopolies that we would think are fine. Um, I mean, we used to use the example of airplane manufacturers. That has been become a little more controversial <laughs> recently. Um, but you know, there are some industries where it makes sense to have those economies of scale, and it's very difficult to have multiple players um, just because of you know the the way the industry functions. Um, but I would say that uh, you know the UK takes kind of. Uh, and, and the EU takes a very proactive approach where they are sort of like actively looking for anti-competitive behavior and they are actively evaluating to see whether this uh, dominance in the marketplace is something that is uh, has been acquired fairly and also is sort of healthy and not subject to becoming too entrenched. Um, and, you know, and then they do those evaluations, whereas basically we have a completely retroactive approach right now where we wait until the problem is really bad <laughs> and then we figure out what we should try and do about it and so I, I basically you know I think the regulators just need to be much more proactive um, but it's you know it's not an easy question I admit. yeah sure um, so we live in I think very interesting times when it comes to 
monetary policy, of all things. I think the last 15 years, the basic assumptions behind monetary policy over the last 100 have been seriously challenged. We've had an unprecedented stretch of extremely low interest rates in the United States and other countries. We've seen proponents of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, experimenting with entirely new systems that say, no, you know what? We're going to have a completely capped money supply. So what do you see as the effects of of monetary policy in, in recent decades, such as low interest rates and quantitative easing, on the trends that you've been observing? Yeah, certainly. So with quantitative easing, there's no question that that has exacerbated inequality because basically it's it sort of was in the same zeitgeist of the trickle-down economics that if we just uh, you know print a bunch of money, uh, then that'll somehow sort of trickle down into society and will and will generate um, you know more prosperity. But actually, what it of course has done is just continue to kind of. Um, continue to uh, concentrate wealth uh, in the hands of you know existing shareholders and so that has ultimately been a failure um, the other thing that's really interesting is actually and we cite this in our book is there was uh, there was a woman who was studying cartels and she was looking at how and why they form and you know what are the conditions under which they flourish and actually so she thought it was going to be all these various things and actually the only thing that she found that was statistically significant was low interest rates um, and the reason hmm. being because essentially if you're in a high interest rate environment as a firm, um, you need to be able to sort of, you need your collusion to like pay off more immediately. Um, whereas when you're in a low interest rate environment, you can you can be patient, you can afford to sort of wait, you can follow your competitors' moves. Um, and, you know. do you, do, did you say the name or can you send me a link later? I'll send you a link. I'm, okay, great. I'm forgetting her name, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I found that really compelling and interesting um, that in some ways that may have also precipitated these dynamics of concentration because once you and once you get to the level where you only have a few key players in each industry, it is much easier for them to collude even tacitly or even to you know, follow each other's price moves. Um, so we see that a lot in different industries. Uh, airlines is a great example of that. Yeah, so I want to um, come back to the idea behind, uh, uh, the idea behind this, you know, uh, this event today, which is, you know, reasons why people don't get wealthy. Um, you know, you mentioned shareholders getting, um, you know, getting a lot wealthier than employees. But, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of regular people are shareholders. I mean, most people in here probably have s shares of some sort or brokerage account. So it is that, is there some s situation where even, you know, an, uh, um, is there something rigged with the sharehold, shareholding itself where maybe the average person doesn't have access to the same investments as as someone else would? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, what is kind of shocking when I was researching is that... Yeah, um, I'm a shareholder. Why are I rich? Come on. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, and also actually, I think it's like less than 50% of Americans actually own stock directly. Um, and, and not just directly, but even through another vehicle like a pension, you know, sort of... Um, fund or something like that. And so uh, so actually there's a significant amount of people that don't actually participate in markets whatsoever, and so they're not getting the gains. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the other interesting thing that we talk about in the book is something called horizontal shareholding, where, uh, so Warren Buffett is a great example, where um, it means that you own stock in all all of the major players within one industry. So he used to say that he would never touch airlines with a 10-foot pole. You know, he was like, this is a horrible investment. Uh, 
staying away, death trap, quote unquote. Uh, and yet now Berkshire Hathaway, his investment firm, is the first, second, or third primary shareholder in all four of the American major airlines. And so you have to ask yourself, well, why did that shift so dramatically? And he just invested all of them at the same time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, essentially. Just, um, yeah. And so, and basically it's because, you know, now that they've consolidated and they have that market dominance, uh, he thinks it's a great investment. And so he's plowed his money in. Mm. But, but the so the piece about horizontal shareholding that's interesting, too, is that there's now some evidence to suggest that that also de-incentivizes competition, because if you're American Airlines and you know that your primary shareholders also own all your competitors, you don't want to go and actually compete with them and steal market share from them. You're basically incentivized to just make sure that the industry does well. So that's why you're going to raise fees and you're going to um, do capacity discipline and like provide fewer flights on major routes so that you can jack the airline prices up and things like that. So, um, yeah, so there's ways with the rise of passing, passive investing that this has also kind of exacerbated those dynamics. So I think that, um, you know, a, a lot of the reasons why people don't get wealthy that were, um, that were given, some of them are stuff that's kind of outside of your control, uh, like where you're born, your upbringing, that, that kind of thing. But there are some things that are within a person's control, you know, you know, do you learn from your mistakes? Do you take risks where appropriate? Um, you know, do you plan for the future? I, we just spoke about this in this group. So I have, I, I still believe in the idea that there, there is something that you can do, even in a rigged system, to work for a better future. So do you have anything to say about what people can do on an individual level to improve their wealth, or even just their well-being, uh, in this type of economy, in other words, despite the problems that you point at? Um, yes, certainly. So I think, um, I think though, of course, our book is sort of claiming that it's much harder and that there are many hidden forces working against people in this regard. Um, you know, I think things like probably not uh, ballooning, you know, credit and, and debt uh, is, is one thing. I'm Canadian and Canada is like second in the world for personal debt and private debt. Who's first? Is that us? Uh, China, actually. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, those, those are, I, I, th I just think there's a lot of financial illiteracy. Um, you know, I didn't really know anything. I, I couldn't have told you what a bond was like four years ago. Um, and look at me now. I know. Right. Uh, so it is amazing, you know, what, what you can, what you can learn. But I think that, um, yeah, I think that that is a failure of the education system probably to help people really understand the dynamics of, of sort of, um, you know, personal financing and, and, um, and there's also the poverty premium where, you know, those who don't have means end up paying higher interest rates on to access financing. And that is just a real issue, you know? Um, so there, there's all kinds of things, but I, I think that, I don't know, that might be one, one area we could improve on. All right. So now it's been about 15 minutes. So we're just about ready to wrap it up. Um, do you have any closing thoughts about anything that we just said in the show or this event and also tell my podcast listeners where they can find out more about you and your book oh okay um <laughs> yeah this is where you get to plug yourself oh my favorite thing um so mythofcapitalism.com if anyone wants to follow our work we have a newsletter um and unfortunately you can purchase the book on amazon um <laughs> but i would prefer if you did it from your local uh, bookstore um and uh yeah no this has been fantastic thank you again everyone for coming out and max for hosting me appreciate it denise thanks for being on the show thank you thank you thank you Thank you.
All right. So a couple of things from that. First, I think we have to talk about the definition of capitalism, because I asked that question for a reason. I think that that's something that really needs to be detangled uh, in this era. If it ever was detangled, I don't think that that everyone agrees on what the definition of capitalism is. Last week, I asked Michael Bronspiegel that question. He runs the Capitalism Facebook page on, uh, on, on Facebook. Of course, it's on Facebook. It's a Facebook page. Or I think he just offered his answer without prompting. Maybe I didn't ask it to him directly. He does that sometimes. Um, but his answer kind of focused on free exchange. So in other words, I do something for you. You do something for me. We voluntarily agreed to it. Um, and so that is um, the essence of capitalism. Denise talks about a competitive marketplace as the essence of capitalism. So competition. If I go into a market, then you can also get into the same market. And that makes sense because uh, – well, that makes sense in her context because her book is you know research about dwindling competition. For me personally, I tend to focus on the uh, individual saving and investing for the future part of capitalism. So in other words, I decide to do with less today. Um, and instead, I try to build something with those resources that will make my life better for the future. And it has to be done on an individual basis. It's something that the average person in society is thinking about. Uh, that's where my mind goes when I think of capitalism. Competition and free exchange are certainly a part of that. All these things go hand in hand. I think that free exchange is absolutely necessary for that to happen. Competition, I see as a necessary consequence of that. Um, I guess there is an exception, although, you know, in certain cases, I do have room for one-player capitalism. I can say I could fix up my house instead of watching TV, and now I have a better house. Or I could work on my human capital. I could choose to learn something as an investment for the future that will make my, you know, I'll be more knowledgeable and I'll have more marketable skills. And in these cases, you know, there isn't someone that I'm competing with directly. But in massively multiplayer capitalism, you're going to get, you know, like we have today, I guess, um, or, or, or sort of have, you're going to get healthy competition unless there's something really broken. And I kind of look in a few places to see what's broken. For example, it could be the regulations in the industry. Uh, oftentimes, it is the regulations in the industry. In fact, there's an article out today about a new super strict copyright regulation that was passed in Germany and the EU and how that's actually going to lead to future consolidation of the internet companies, particularly those who generate and host content. Because in order to police all of this content for copyright at the level that the um, that, that regulation wants, uh, that company who, who does it is going to need a lot of investment. It's going it's to keep out new entrants into that market. So I'll post that article on the show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 62. And then another thing I look at is monetary policy. But before I get into that, I want to talk about this LinkedIn article by Ray Dalio, in relation to the definition of capitalism. I don't want to go into his old article. He's the founder of Bridgewater Capital. That's the world's largest hedge fund, and it's in Connecticut, and he's treated, um, I don't know, uh, his words are treated with a lot of weight for some reason. Uh, Bridgewater is worth like billions and billions of dollars. But when I lived in Connecticut, I used to just cross town lines and take my dog there to poop in their woods all the time. So that's my experience with Bridgewater. Anyway, 
he wrote that there's a revolution coming soon because of inequality. And he says things like, capitalism is evolving in a bad direction. Capitalism needs to be reformed. And I, it really grinds on my ears when somebody uses that in, uh, as their title, as their definition, because er, not as their definition, but, but when someone talks about capitalism that way, because it really doesn't make sense with any of the definitions that we use. So for example, take my definition, which is, you know, people you know, um, um, foregoing consumption now to invest and save and, and do something for the future, improve their, their capital stock. And when you say like capitalism is evolving in the bad direction, what is evolving? It's, it's, I define it as doing this activity. It's not, uh, it, it's, it's not, <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. So think about it as free exchange. If you say capitalism is evolving in a bad direction, does that mean that we let people exchange freely. I just really, really hate what they, what they did with that freedom. Uh, that could be what you're saying. And then if another thing is competition, if you say capitalism is evolving in a bad direction, capitalism needs to be reformed, by the way, you're saying, well, I guess you could be saying maybe competition isn't strong enough and we need to use the government to make it more. I don't know. So it's, there are a lot of like weasel words that come out of capitalism. I, I know that, um, or, or, or these poor definitions. So um, I, I just want to say that I'm cognizant of that. Now, coming back to the book, I think it's interesting that Denise brought up the Gilded Age in her presentation. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's the period in American history that lasted uh, in the last part of the 19th century. I would say it was from the end of the Civil War. Uh, you know, we had the 13th Amendment, uh, slavery was over in this country, which is a large part of the economy, uh, particularly the South, was based off of slavery. But, uh, you know, it really affected the whole country. Um, and so it started, let's say, the 1870s with the end of Reconstruction. So now it wasn't a military country. And so let's say the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913, where uh, we really fundamentally changed the way money worked. So historians, I think, cut that short with the Progressive Era and say, hey, this is the big bad Gilded Age when these companies were ganging up on the little guy, and then I guess Teddy Roosevelt rode in and busted them up, if, and that's why things are good now. But the reality is, if you look at the data, the Gilded Era was, first of all, it was an era of big wealth. You know, not, if you look at people's actual standard of living, it was much lower than it is today because we have now 100 years of more saving and investing. But from 1865, the U.S. essentially went from a war-torn nation to the most powerful economy in the world. And there was some collusion with governments, particularly in the railroad industry, and you could certainly find examples of anti-competitive behavior in steel and oil. But I always come back to the fact, the thing that I can't get over is that prices on these goods were dropping like a rock throughout that whole thing. So you look at Carnegie Steel, steel prices were dropping. I'm not talking like 5%, cut, you know, you, you, you see these sales, oh, 10% off. No, I'm talking, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's something like 80%. And same with oil. And that was a really fantastic thing for the average person. And when I look at that difference between that era and today, first of all, I'm not totally convinced that the average person isn't getting better and better off today. My whole life experience is that we are. So maybe my personal life experience is, the, is an anomaly, but uh, that would have to be a whole conversation. But yeah, there is a sense today that something is wrong. And for me, 
When I look at the main difference, it's hard not to see monetary policy in the center of everything because any other legislative fixes will be subject to regulatory capture with the wrong incentive structure in place. In other words, if you expect Congress to just pass stricter stricter merger requirements, I think that people like Warren Buffett can kind of figure out ways uh, around that to keep the airline thing going, for example. And they're going to use those regulations to strengthen some monopolies, the ones people who aren't focused on, maybe while they tear down other um, quasi-monopolies to use as fodder for a public outrage machine in order to get such legislative passed. In other words, what this company's doing is bad. We need some legislation to fix it. Legislation passes. Oh, look at that. It really helped my company over here. Uh, that happens all the time. To use this as an, as an example, I'm going to point to the recent regulations in the EU over copyright. But there's tons and tons and tons of these. You know, We talked last week about the regulations that Mark Zuckerberg wants. You think the regulations that he's calling for are going to break up Facebook? Fat chance. He's going to point to some other bad actors, and those bad actors are annoying him for some reason, and, uh, and it's going to end up helping Facebook, of course. So coming back to monetary policy, I think that we used to understand the importance of banking and the monetary system in this country. The founding fathers fought about it all the time. The Gilded Era president, William McKinley, this is 1896, he ran on keeping hard money, keeping the gold standard. And as we've moved uh, progressively away from that over the last hundred years, it's, I think, broken our ability to calculate um, the real costs and benefits of savings and investment, which if you think about it, that's the basis of capitalism, and that's what you need to properly build wealth. So to me, that's the lead headline, and I hope the revolution that the Bridgewater guy says is coming, if it does come, is simply a move away from this trend, maybe to Bitcoin in my dream, and not some mass violence or something, because that would be awful. And that's why I asked this question about our monetary system. And you know what? I wasn't sure what answer I would have gotten. Uh, Denise had a great answer. She certainly did encounter this in her research. Now, obviously, to me, this is the lead headline, and that's where I'm coming from. And it's not the main headline in Myth of Capitalism, so I'll be sure to read it to get that other point of view. But I do want to read a clip of the book that she sent me afterwards. It really shocked me, and I think it'll shock you too. Here's the clip. Economists have studied cartels to determine what creates them and how they break apart. Economists Margaret C. Levenstein and Valerie Suslow looked at over 500 cases between 1961 and 2013. They thought that perhaps the cartels formed when times were bad and businesses band together. Or perhaps they formed when authorities were lax in enforcing the rules. But these were dead ends. After examining the evidence, Levenstein and Suslow made the unusual discovery that the most important factor in the creation and breakup of cartels was the interest rate. Cartels are more likely to break up during periods of high real interest rates, presumably because higher interest rates require higher immediate rates of return for collusion. They found the relationship was almost perfect and observed that creating and sustaining cartels required patience. The higher the interest rates, the less likely cartels would be sustained, and the lower the real rates, the more likely cartels would cooperate and keep playing their games. They noticed that there was a very close relationship between the ability of a cartel to sustain collusion and the discount rate of its members. Wow. That gives us a lot to think about. I want to hear from you. 
please, please, no 50-page expositions on the founding of the Federal Reserve. I, I, but come on, quick points, questions for me to answer on the show. Let's hear it. Localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power. And she said, I don't care what you say, you're gonna see me shine.